The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a fellow registered dietitian, Ms. Brenda Davis. She is internationally renowned as an expert in plant-based nutrition, and she is based in British Columbia. Ms. Davis has worked as a public health nutritionist, clinical nutrition specialist, academic nutrition instructor, and she is the lead dietitian in a diabetes research project on the Marshall Islands, where she has reversed diabetes in some select individuals. Ms. Davis is co-author of nine award-winning best-selling books, including Becoming Vegetarian, Becoming Vegan, The Raw Food Revolution Diet, and Defeating Diabetes. Her books are vegetarian, vegan nutrition classics, with over 750,000 copies in print in eight languages. Ms. Davis has authored and co-authored articles for peer-reviewed medical and nutrition journals and magazines. She is a past chair of the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group of the American Dietetic Association, and in 2007, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. Ms. Davis speaks internationally. Two of her most recent events included the 2017 International Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine Conference. When I contacted Ms. Davis to be my guest, she was working on her latest book, also addressing diabetes and reversing that illness, and I saw her presentation in which she evaluated the popular paleo diet, and I knew I wanted to have her back on the show as a guest to help us navigate this diet and fill us in on her research. So welcome, Brenda. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I wanted to have you back to talk about the work that you're doing on your new book about diabetes and reversing diabetes and insulin resistance in particular. But I also wanted to comment on a slide that you showed during one of your paleo diet evaluation presentations. And you spoke about how we have to factor in the consequences of our food choices beyond ourselves. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, I think uh, often when people are trying to select a diet that's optimal, they're looking at what diet will be optimal for their own personal health. And I think as human beings, we have the ultimate responsibility to make sure that whatever choices we're making are ecologically sustainable and ethically justifiable. Because, of course, any diet is only as good for the human species as it is good for the planet and good for the other inhabitants of the planet, be they human or not. And so, to me, it's just imperative we do that. And where the paleo diet is concerned, I think that's where it really slips on the banana peel because certainly it's a diet that is preferable to the standard Western diet that's full of processed foods. Paleo diets tend to get rid of a lot of processed foods, which makes them preferable to these soda and potato chip type diets. But we also must consider, I think David Katz said it best when 
he actually did the math looking at if everyone on the planet ate a paleolithic diet, uh, what that would mean ecologically and what it would mean is we would need about 15 planet Earths to sustain the current population. And so it's obviously not ecologically sustainable. And when we think about the ethical justifiability of what we're doing, we cannot discount or discard the animals that are part of the food system. We slaughter 70 billion of them. That's about 10 times the human population every single year. And we really need to recognize that probably 90 to 95% of those animals are raised in extreme confinement and uh, very, really horrendous conditions. And we have a responsibility, I think, as a thinking species to say that that's just entirely, to me, unjustifiable. So we've got to re-examine the consequences of what we do beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It took me a while to get there because, of course, that's not the way we're trained. At least it wasn't three decades ago, and I'm hoping things are changing, but the focus was always on nutrition and our own selves rather than the ripple effects that we have with our food choices. So I really appreciate sharing that philosophy with you. And I just wanted to share also that in 2016, the National Academy of Sciences released a report that stated that by 2050, we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 29% if everyone on the planet followed, just simply followed the global dietary guidelines of eating more fruits and vegetables, eating less meat, eating less sugar, eating fewer calories, but that we could actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70% if everyone ate a completely 100% plant-based or vegan diet. Mm. And their recommendation, and this is the National Academy of Sciences, their recommendation was a global shift to a plant-based diet, which I think people need to know these things. This isn't fringe groups talking about shifting the way that we consume foods. It's people like the National Academy of Sciences and like the United Nations Environmental Program also made the same recommendation, a global shift to a plant-based diet. And they basically stated that it was the only way that we would preserve the planet's life support system. Mm. So I think people just need to recognize how important the food choices we make really are. Now, when you say a plant-based diet, are you meaning no animal products whatsoever? You know, the definition of a plant-based diet, it varies with different people. Right. And when I say plant-based, now, you know, with the National Academy of Sciences, they were talking about a vegan diet with a 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. But generally, I personally feel that whatever shift towards more plants, fewer animals that you can make is a shift that's of value and will make a difference. And so people need to do as plant-based as they can within their social world, their cultural world. 
And so even cutting back significantly on your intake of animal products would be of value. And so when we talk about plant-based, often we think about the blue zones, for example, all the people of the blue zones. And the blue zones are the places in the world where people tend to live the longest, healthiest lives. They have more centenarians than anywhere else in the world or more people that live to be 100. But not only do they live to these extended ages, but they actually are still productive, contributing members of their societies at these advanced ages. And so when you look at them, they they all eat plant-based diets, but the degree of plant-based differs a little bit. So the Seventh-day Adventists of Loma Linda, California, are vegetarian. The traditional Okinawans consumed about a half an ounce of fish a day, and that was the only animal product they consumed. The people in the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica consumed animal products more for celebrations. And likewise with the people of Sardinia and Icaria, Greece, where they consume some dairy, a little bit of animal products, but really fairly small amounts. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about the paleo diet, we always weigh what's good and what's bad about it. And of course, the good would be that they're drawing attention to avoiding processed foods. But there's quite a bit of animal product consumption in the paleo diet. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what some of the downfalls are with it. Yeah, well, to me, the biggest downfall is that people who are doing what they call paleo is not really paleo. If you examine the macro and micronutrient intakes of true paleolithic people, what you see is they were consuming pretty close to 100 grams of fiber a day. Mm. They were consuming probably 20 to 30, 35% of calories from fat. Their saturated fat intake was very low. They consumed probably five or 600 milligrams of vitamin C. They consumed an estimated about 7,000 milligrams of potassium. These are all nutrients that are found predominantly in plant foods. Mm-hmm. And so you, you look at, for example, fiber, 100 grams of fiber a day. Most people doing a paleo diet get 20, you know, if they're lucky. They're getting most of their, or a lot of their calories from animal products. And so they don't come anywhere close to a true paleo diet. And I think they need to recognize that the only nutrients that they're really coming close to a paleo diet on are protein, vitamin A, zinc. There are few nutrients that they come very close on. But in fact, people eating plant-based diets come significantly closer to meeting both macro and micronutrient intake of paleolithic people than do people who say they're eating a paleolithic diet today. And so I think they need to recognize that. And I think they also need to recognize that the meat that they're eating does not equal paleo meat. The meat from wild animals is very different. The the fat content in a wild animal might be 10 to 16% of calories. Well, in any domestic animal, it's probably closer to 40, 50, 60% of calories. So it's a very, very different thing. And even the plants aren't quite the same as, you know, that you buy in the supermarket as they were in, in the wild. So the diet, it's really hard to replicate a true paleolithic diet. But certainly the way that people are doing it right now is, is not very reflective of a true paleo diet. And uh, my concern is that we have so many studies showing increased risk of a number of chronic diseases with intake of especially red meat and processed meat, 
that with this great increase in meat consumption, they're going to be shooting themselves in the foot and shooting this, you know, hurting the planet and animals. Can you imagine what we would have to do in terms of ramping up animal production to, to feed everybody paleo? These are really serious concerns. And I know that people say, oh, well, paleo people don't eat processed meat, but they do. I know a ton of people on a paleo diet who are enjoying their bacon and their pepperoni and their sausages and so forth. People in Paleolithic times didn't eat processed meat, and processed meat has been declared a class one human carcinogen. It's not like this is up in the air. We know that this stuff is dangerous to human health. Mm-hmm. So I think people need to wake up and smell the coffee. It, it may be easier for a lot of people to do paleo than it is to do more uh, strongly plant-based. But if you want to really try to replicate a paleo diet, you need to be eating a truckload of plants mm-hmm. and uh, enough fiber. And that's hard to do when you eliminate legumes and grains, which are the most concentrated sources of fiber. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciated the fact that in your assessment of the paleo diet, you went back and looked at the research that nutritional anthropologists did to find out what people were really eating in paleolithic times. And then let's also remember that people were not sitting behind computers under artificial light either. So it's very hard. No, they needed about 3,000 calories a day because of their level of physical activity. Exactly. And that's a really important point. They were constantly active. Yeah. And we are constantly sedentary, it seems, most people nowadays. Yeah. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Ms. Brenda Davis. She is a registered dietitian and internationally renowned expert in plant-based nutrition. She is based in British Columbia. Brenda, I want to jump right into your research on diabetes. I know this is the topic of the new book that you're working on, an update from your previous edition on defeating diabetes. And I went to a lecture that an endocrinologist from the traditional Western medicine field gave in preparation for this talk. And what I noticed was he did talk about the importance of diet and exercise, but not to the level that you do. And he also recommended the first line of defense was to take metformin. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I'm so anxious to speak to you because there are other ways to go about reversing insulin resistance. Let's talk about the course of this disease, type 2 diabetes. It starts usually with insulin resistance. Am I correct? Absolutely. It's a disease of insulin resistance. How does that develop? Insulin resistance develops for a number of reasons. And there are really four main drivers of insulin resistance. And they are inflammation, oxidative stress, something we call lipotoxicity and dysbiosis, which is messed up gut bacteria. Mm. And so if you look at the four main drivers, the first one being inflammation, well, one of the main causes of chronic low-grade inflammation is obesity. So when you get to be overweight, you actually change the production of things like adipokines and different cytokines that actually trigger inflammation. And so it, this fuels insulin resistance. And then with oxidative stress, well, just so people know, this is a really an imbalance between what we call sort of pro-oxidants or free radicals and antioxidants. 
free radicals are really just unstable molecules that have an uneven number of electrons, so they've got to try to steal electrons from other molecules. And when they do, they turn them into free radicals, and it causes this chain reaction of destruction in the body. Well, antioxidants are kind of like heroes that block the chain of destruction by coming along and saying, you know, free radical, I have an electron for you. And they donate an electron without becoming free radicals themselves. Mm. And so we need to have a balance of enough antioxidants to take care of all of these free radicals. And the diet that most people eat today doesn't come anywhere close to doing that. You know, this sort of overload of fat and sugar and processed foods is not exactly loaded with antioxidants, whereas whole plant foods like fruits and vegetables and legumes and these wonderful foods are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's with lipotoxicity. This is another one of the drivers. Well, you're looking at what happens to the body when... You know, we have all of this adipose tissue that specializes in storing fat. But what happens when people get really overweight is their body gets so overloaded with fat that they end up accumulating fat in tissues that are not designed to store fat, like their muscles, their liver, their heart, their pancreas. And this phenomena is called lipotoxicity, and it it damages tissues and profoundly increases insulin resistance. And then the last thing is dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is just when you've got a sort of an unfavorable gut microbiome. And that your gut microbiome is all of the different bacterial species that live in your gut. And that you actually have more cells from these bacteria than you have cells in your entire body. But these microbes, if the bad ones override the good ones, you end up with something called dysbiosis. And dysbiosis fuels insulin resistance as well. It fuels inflammation in of itself. So there are all kinds of things that contribute to this insulin resistance that really, in fact, is the cause of diabetes. It's the main factor. I think it's so interesting that The numbers, first of all, are staggering with regard to how many people have diabetes, how many people have prediabetes and don't know it. There were some Centers for Disease Control and Prevention statistics that one in eight American adults had diabetes in 2014, and the prediction is that if the current trends continue, as many as one in three adults will have diabetes by 2050. And then the rate of pre-diabetes, where people are walking around with elevated levels of blood glucose, not enough to label them diabetics, but heading that way, that's more of a silent developing illness. And your research shows that simple dietary and lifestyle changes can reverse that situation. So in the time remaining, why don't we go through some of the ways people can get a grip on their insulin resistance, reverse it, and improve their chances for not getting diabetes? Okay, well, what's really important for people to understand is that type 2 diabetes is essentially a disease of overconsumption and underactivity. And if we look around the world, there are actually populations in the world that have virtually no type 2 diabetes. And it's interesting, one of the areas that I work and, and have done research in is the Marshall Islands. And the Marshall Islands 
uh, not so very long ago, several decades ago, but not so very long ago, had essentially no type 2 diabetes. These people lived off the land. They were physically active all the time, and they ate unprocessed foods. And when people do that, they tend not to get type 2 diabetes because they don't get overweight. But they became quite sedentary over time, and their island, their main island, might support, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 people, and there are 30,000 people there now. So Mm -hmm. they have to import foods. And so they end up importing the cheapest processed foods that money can buy. And in fact, when you do that, you're fueling this disease. So they become sedentary and they eat processed foods. And so if a person wants to overcome uh, diabetes, what they need to do, number one, is to do what they need to do to achieve and maintain a healthy body weight. That is the number one factor that will reverse insulin resistance. But it's not the only factor because we see overcoming of insulin resistance even before people normalize their weight. Hmm. So in this situation, what you want to do is you want to be exercising at every opportunity. You want to be walking at every opportunity and you definitely want to be walking after every meal. So every time you eat, move your body, even if it's only for 10 minutes, even if it's slowly get out and walk or walk around your house or walk around wherever you can walk around because that makes just a huge difference in your blood glucose control. And then second, you need to, you know, what I often tell people is when you have diabetes, it's kind of like your house is on fire. And the last thing you want to do when your house is on fire is to be pouring gasoline on the fire. Mm -hmm. You want to be pouring water on the fire you can put the fire out. And so basically, when you feed yourself or when you eat processed foods that are loaded with sugar, fat, salt, all of these things, uh, when you consume a lot of fatty animal foods, this is gasoline on the fire, in my view. Sort of what would be water on the fire would be unprocessed plant foods. So these are high fiber, high antioxidant, high phytochemical nutrient-dense, phytochemical-loaded foods. And so we're looking at vegetables, fruits, legumes, all of the legume family, the beans, peas, lentils, all of those things, whole grains, but truly whole grains, not just whole grain processed products, and a few nuts and seeds. And to me, those are really the core ingredients of a diabetes reversal diet. Well, you developed something called the grain hierarchy, and I think this is one area where people are really confused. You know, they'll go to the store, and we think we're doing the right thing when we buy whole grain bread. But in fact, because bread is made from flour, and flour is a ground whole grain, you're saying that someone who wants to reverse their insulin resistance and improve insulin sensitivity, they want to eat intact whole grains. Give me some examples of this grain hierarchy that you've developed, which is also on your website, I might add. Yeah, so the whole grain hierarchy I developed for this very reason, because what I was seeing is that when we would say eat whole grains, people would eat whole grain, whole wheat bread. They would eat kamut flakes or puffed wheat or some sort of whole grain cracker. And these are whole grain products but they're processed foods that have often 
the, the grain has been ground into a flour before the product's made. And when you grind a grain into a flour, you increase the surface area to such an extent that it becomes much more rapidly absorbable. And you lose nutrients as well in the process. And you, you, nobody eats a bowl of whole wheat flour. You know, you add fat and sugar and salt before you eat it, whether you're making crackers or cookies or bread or whatever. And so these are not the highest level of whole grains, if you will. These are not the types of whole grains that will do the most in terms of reversing your disease. So if you want a whole grain that will, will reverse disease, you want a whole grain as it's picked from the plant with nothing added, nothing taken away. So here we're talking about oat groats, camut berries, spelt berries, wild rice, quinoa, black rice, these grains that haven't been ground up or haven't been cut up or haven't been rolled or none of that. And you can even sprout them to improve the nutrition further. And then next on the hierarchy would be what we call cut whole grains like steel-cut oats or bulgur. These are still very good, not as good as intact as they're picked from the plant because the cutting increases the surface area and increases the rate of absorption and then rolled and then shredded and then ground and then flaked and then puffed at the bottom of the list. Mm. And so what people need to understand is is if you want a diet that, that really is hardcore, uh, draw the line at no lower than the rolled grains. And, and by doing that, you're getting rid of breads and all these processed cereals and crackers and cookies and all of that garbage. And I shouldn't say garbage. It can be reasonable food if it's very carefully selected. But you will get the most dramatic, best results if you don't use those foods, if you stick to, you know, steel-cut oats or oat groats as a breakfast cereal. And a whole grain, a barley is probably one of the very best grains for people with diabetes because it, it has such a low glycemic impact or impact on your blood sugar. So these are the grains that you really want to be choosing more often. And bread, our impact on blood sugar is affected really by so many different things. So for example, if you take flour and you make pasta, pasta is pretty dense. And when you cook it just sort of al dente, the glycemic index is maybe 40-something, 45-something like that in comparison to 70 or 75 for whole wheat bread Hmm. because the light fluffiness means it gets broken down more quickly than the heavy, denser pasta. So a lot of things come into play. So if you're selecting bread... The very best bread to eat would be bread that you can essentially stand on, you know, the very heavy German pumpernickel that might have a glycemic impact of 40 or 45 compared to the 74 or 75 for light, fluffy whole wheat bread. Well, Brenda, we're going to have to direct our listeners to your wonderful website, which is www.brendadavisrd.com. For more information, your website is fantastic. It's loaded with articles, recipes, more information about your books, videos, and slides. I will provide a link for your talk on the paleo diet for our listeners as well. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is 
is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most important, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Brenda Davis, a fellow registered dietitian and internationally known expert in plant-based nutrition. Thank you so much for your insights and your research, and we will anxiously await your new book on defeating diet, diabetes, what to eat. Thank you, Brenda. Oh, thanks so much, Melinda. It was such a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much for inviting me.